Well, as we uh, go into today's text, I was reminded by a saying that the seals have that basically there is no easy day. No easy day. In fact, one of the guys wrote a book called No Easy Day. Um, as we look at this text in Mark chapter 1, we're going to see one of the busiest days of Jesus' ministry. I mean, He had an incredible busy day. And it takes place on the Sabbath, which is interesting. Because it was the day that they were supposed to rest. And just as a quick reminder, remember as we, we jump into Mark, and I, I believe everybody's been here, but, but just as a quick reminder, because we have been out for a couple of weeks, remember Mark starts off with what? The beginning of the euangelion of God. The very first verse, he tells you what he's writing about, which is, remember, euangelion meant what? It meant a king or emperor was born, a king or emperor was coronated, or a king or emperor had won a great military victory. That was the phrase that was, I mean, that was what that word meant. Euangelion, good news, gospel. But it was only used for those three things. And so Mark starts off that way. And as we've worked through Mark 1, we saw he identifies Jesus as a king like no other king that's ever been. He identified with his people. He intervened for his people, not just for his kingdom stuff. It was his kingdom stuff, but he cared about the people. And he ensured hope for his people. And uh, we looked at the kingdom of God, what that phrase meant. It was the realm of God's domain. And remember, in their mind, a king's domain was where his will was obeyed. It wasn't necessarily geographic. We looked at the word repentance, what it means and what it doesn't mean. A lot of people think they've repented because they feel bad over their sin. That's not what repentance means. There is an element of sorrow there, but it's a change of mind. It's a change of heart and a change of direction. It includes all three of those. And we talked about that. We talked about belief, the word pistuo. That word belief is a belief to the extent of complete trust and reliance. And, and so we talked about that. And then we looked at the, the follow. Remember Jesus said, repent, believe, and follow. And uh, he said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And we looked at that. And he wanted his disciples to follow him. He wanted his people to follow him. We looked at the motivation to follow, which we said was ultimately our love for him. We looked at the cost of following. Cost everything. He doesn't just want you to follow superficially. He wants you to give everything. He says, unless a man is willing to what? Die to himself. Take up his cross daily. He's not worthy to be my disciple. So we talked about that. And before Thanksgiving, uh, when Mike taught you, he, he talked about Jesus exposing the darkness. He went into the synagogue. And I, I can honestly say before I, I read that and really got into that, I had never thought about the fact that the demons were there in the synagogue. And I don't know if you thought about it, but in the Old Testament, you don't read about any possessions. There's none in the Old Testament. 
And, and in the New Testament, you see it when Jesus is around, but after Jesus, there's only two other instances that are mentioned in Acts. 16, I think, and 19. That's it. It's not really addressed in the pastoral epistles. Why? Well, because demons are content to be under the radar. But in the presence of Jesus, they couldn't be because He exposed them. And that was interesting to me as I looked at that. Well, today, we're going to look at Mark 1, 29-39. And we're going to see Jesus having His busiest day, like I say so far, and it's on the Sabbath. But He didn't come to rest. He came to preach the Gospel. And Mark leaves no doubt after this text today that Jesus has authority over disease, over the demons, and His purpose, though, is not to cast out demons. His purpose is not to heal disease. He states clearly His purpose is to preach the Gospel. Which is interesting that He does that. And if you remember back, before He's in Capernaum where He's at today, just to give you a little quick context, He had gone into where? Into the Nazareth Synagogue. And he declared, what? Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. And he, had, he read from Isaiah about Messiah. And he's saying, I'm here. And how did they respond? They didn't like him. In fact, they wanted to kill him. Remember, they wanted to throw him off a cliff and he walked right through him. Why? Because Jesus did not preach the Gospel they wanted to hear and He wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. That's why. And so He goes to Capernaum. By the way, who, who in here has been to Capernaum? You guys have both been with me. Phil, y'all been with me over there. It was the largest city on the Sea of Galilee as far as like uh, for the Jewish people. Their, their, uh, it was their largest uh, port there for, for business. They exported fish all over the world from there. They exported basalt. You remember the basalt, which was a, a stone, the black stone for building? Yeah. And they also exported what else? You remember what else they exported from there? We saw one there. The big millstones. All the millstones that you saw around that area that they used to press olive oil came from Capernaum. And so it was a big business hub right there on the Sea of Galilee. Peter had a house there. In fact, we saw his house. in the, It's like an insula, which is where the, the family, with the extended family would live. And we went there, and they found devotional writings there in Greek and Aramaic and Latin that date back to the end of the first century. And they really believe that is where Peter and his family lived. Peter, Andrew, and James and John probably were there with them as well. Because they all came from Bethsaida, but they, they lived there in Capernaum because that was the, yeah. where their business was. And so Jesus leaves Nazareth, comes down to Capernaum, goes into the synagogue, and is what Mike covered last time, and he goes into the synagogue, confronts the demon, throws him out, and now he's leaving. This is what sets the stage for today. 
He's leaving the synagogue because what does every Jew do after synagogue? They go home and they have a big meal together. It was tradition. You leave synagogue and you go home and you have a fellowship meal together afterwards. And so Peter had invited Jesus to come, come to the house. And so he leaves the synagogue to go to Peter's house to have this big meal. So that's the context. We're going to open it up to Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 29 through 39. And just join with me as we read. And then we're going to flip over to uh, Luke. Actually, I'm not going to read Luke. I'll just I'll make a note about the Luke passage because there's a parallel passage in Luke and Matthew. But we're going to, Luke gives a little bit of insight to the text here that uh, I think it's worth noting. So uh, Mark 1, verse 29. And immediately, this is right after he, he confronts the demon in the synagogue, and immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, if you flip over to Luke real quick, Luke chapter 4, it's the parallel passage. Verse 39, I'm sorry, verse 38, it says, He arose and left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. Luke, being a physician, says it's not just a fever. This is a high fever, which would kill people back then. It'll kill people today if it's not treated. I mean, you can die from your, from your body getting too hot, right? I mean, like if you, you get too hot, you don't cool down. And they appealed to him on her behalf. That's an interesting uh, insight. They, it wasn't just that they said, hey, here she is. They appealed to him. Hey, you know, you, you've healed some people. You turned the water to wine. You, you think you could heal the mother-in-law? Because otherwise, we ain't going to eat. She's the one that cooks, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, and he stood over her, and it says he rebuked the fever. He spoke to the fever like a demon which was interesting. And it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. And if you go down, verse 42, it says he went to a desolate place, and the people sought him, and they came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. 
But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for that purpose. These are the very words of God. So as we look at this text today, I want you to think about two things that God reveals in the text. And and we'll break them down. First is God reveals the ministry authority of Messiah. We we saw Him cast out the demons, but He reveals the ministry authority of Messiah. First of all, He has authority over disease, which is a consequence of sin. Right? Disease is a consequence of the garden fall. And and Messiah has authority over that. and, And He reveals that over the disease. But again, we see He also has authority over demons, which is the control of sin in our life. The demons would come into somebody to control them for evil. They would imitate what the Holy Spirit would ultimately do to come into somebody to control them for good. And Jesus said, no, you are not going to have control. The demon control was temporary because he had authority over that. So that's the first thing we see is the ministry authority of Messiah. The second thing we see is the ministry aim of Messiah, which is to know and do the will of God. And you go, well, he was God. He was, but he had put aside, he had put aside his power to know the future. And he says, I can only do what my father tells me to do. So if Jesus had to go pray, we ought to be going to pray. If Jesus had to break away to go get filled by the Father, we need to break away. And so that's the first, the aim of the Messiah, the ministry aim was to know and do the will of the Father. That was the first part. And the second part was to preach and clarify the euangelion of God. He said, that is why I came, to preach and clarify what the gospel is over people. So let's break this down a little bit, the authority over disease. It says, verse 29, immediately he went out of the synagogue where he had been preaching in Capernaum and into the house. And I find that phraseology interesting. If our faith, guys, isn't active in our homes, we have no credibility in the world. It it doesn't matter what you do in the church or in your Bible study. If when you leave and you go to your home, it's not there, it's meaningless. Growing up, I used to see people, and I was conditioned to live one way on Sunday, another way every other day of the week. One way at church or in, uh, when I'm around Christian people, another way when I'm not around them. And I can tell you from my past experience, if I didn't have Jesus in my life, when I went to that shooting school a couple of weeks ago, I would have very much adapted to that group to been what those guys were. 
instead of being a light in the darkness, I would have just become a part of the darkness. And so if your faith doesn't leave your place of worship, your place of gathering where you get instruction, it's really not a valid faith. It's got to be something that goes with you into your home. So it says immediately. That's verse 29. Verse 30 says, his mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately, I mean, Mark loves that word immediately. Immediately, they told him. And we saw from Luke, they didn't just tell, they asked him, hey, do you think you could heal her? Now, here's what's significant about this. In that culture, a widow, a poor widow, a poor sick widow was one of the lowest on the totem pole in value. Now, we know what Scripture says about widows. Not to God. I'm not talking about God's culture. I'm talking about in their culture. A poor, sick widow. We don't even know her name. Her name didn't even make the page. But she was important to Jesus. You see, He wasn't just for the rich and powerful. We miss this message sometimes because we we look at it not from their culture, but in their culture, the people... Everybody didn't have copies of the Scriptures. You had to be very wealthy to have the Torah to be able to have your own personal copy of the Torah. God cared about the rich because He blessed the rich. If you were rich, that meant that you had the blessing of God. If you were sick, if you had a fever, even in Scripture it says, God will bring fever upon you if you are disobedient. Like in Deuteronomy. And so, they write her off. And, and you've got to remember... There was no healed diseases until like the 1800s. So usually if somebody was sick, you waited to see if they were going to die or not. There was no knowledge of viruses or bacteria. And so they get home. She's laying in the bed, which means she was feeling. Have you ever had a really high fever? And you feel awful. You don't want to do anything. And I love what it says in verse 31. It says, He took her by the hand. How many of you are likely to go grab the hand of somebody who's sick with a fever and take their hand just to comfort them? I was thinking back about COVID. How many opportunities did we miss to minister in the name of Jesus because we let the government and we let hospitals tell us we couldn't do that back back in the early hundreds you know like uh, 300 AD when plagues were going around it was the Christians who even died ministering to people who were sick because they felt like it was their calling to be those priests and ambassadors and it's just like We've lost that somewhat. And Jesus doesn't care about a fever. You go, well, He was God, yes. But do you know He hurt? Do you know that He still could hurt Himself? Do you know that He still could catch a cold? 
He was in a human body. Did Jesus get hungry? Did Jesus get thirsty? You think Jesus caught a cold? And so he still, he took her by the hand. He took her by the hand. And what happens? It says, it was gone. He rebuked it, we know from Luke. So he obviously spoke something to it too. Why? Because all disease, every disease is the outcome of sin. Everything can be traced back to the fall. We wouldn't have it if it wasn't. So guess what, guys? Every time somebody's sick with something is an opportunity to minister. Have you ever thought about that? Every time somebody around you is sick is an opportunity for you to have a gospel conversation with somebody. Now, you don't start off beating them over the head with the Bible, but you start off by telling them, yeah, this is terrible. I feel awful, but this is a result of what happened so long ago. And so what did she do when she was healed? He raises her up. She immediately begins to start serving Jesus. Guys, when Jesus healed, it was instant and it was complete. If you've ever been sick, how long does it take you? If you've had a high fever and you've had a bad virus, how long does it take you before you're ready to start really getting out and doing something? <laughs> Are you able right away, like when the fever goes, to get up? No, your body is, is rocked. I mean, these viruses rock your body to try to fight it. But you know what? A sure sign that somebody has been healed by Jesus is when they start serving Him. If people don't want to serve Jesus, you've got to ask yourself, have they really been healed by Him? And I'm not talking about physical healing here. I'm talking about spiritual healing. It's a sure sign. So He had authority over disease. He spoke to it and it was gone. It was gone instantly. And then verse 32, what happens? Down in verse 32, it says, that evening at sunset. Why does it say that evening at sunset? Well, because it was the Sabbath. People couldn't walk but a certain amount on the Sabbath. They couldn't do any work on the Sabbath, and they certainly didn't want to make Jesus do any work on the Sabbath. But as soon as sunset came, Sabbath was over, guess what? Hey, this guy cast out a demon. This guy healed the mother-in-law. And it says what? They all came looking. They all came looking. The Sabbath had ended. It says, and it says, all who were sick were brought to him. People began bringing people who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city, it says in verse 33, was at the door. Can you imagine that? This is the largest city there, the business city. Talk about a booming success story. He heals the mother-in-law, cast out a demon, and the whole city is coming around. They'd never heard anybody like this. They'd never seen anybody like this. And it says in verse 34, he healed many. He cast out many demons. It didn't mean that he didn't cast out others. They're just giving you, Mark's just trying to let you know, he healed a lot of people and cast out a lot of demons. And the demons were trying to speak, but it says he didn't let them speak. Why? It says they knew him. 
Why do you think he didn't let the demons say who he was? This is the Son of God. Yeah. Um, he. Want that to be your witness? He didn't need demon PR, right? He didn't want. He did not want people associating him with magic, with uh, demonic stuff. They were already saying he had a demon. And by the way, the people there, they weren't looking for spiritual healing. The people were wanting physical healing. And he didn't really want to be identified as a healer or a magician. That was not his goal. But he did. Say again? He did. He did heal many. He no, he healed, but he did not want to be identified as a healer. Oh, I'm, I'm, he, he absolutely did. He healed a lot of non-believers. But the purpose of his healing was not for the people. It was ultimately to authenticate that he was Messiah fulfilling Scripture. And here's the thing. The most dangerous kind of heresy out there is the kind that affirms Jesus but has false teaching associated with it. Do demons have good teaching? Do they have do good theology? Are they trying to help you no. with theology? No. They may affirm Jesus, but their theology is awful. They, they know what's coming. Jesus came to heal souls, not bodies. That was not His purpose when He came. It just authenticated him as Messiah. Today, and unfortunately today, we have a lot of fake healers, a lot of you know false faith teachers out there. And today, God's people are authenticated by His Word. Not, not by some healing ministry. Have you ever wondered why all these faith healers out there fake healers, faith healers, whatever you want to call them, why they don't ever go to the hospital and just walk up and down the hospital wards healing people and telling them about Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? I, I just want to tell them, hey, why don't you just go down to Wolfson's and just walk up and down praying for healing for people? They won't do that. They screen people. I had Costi Hinn on the radio years, uh, years ago. Costi was Benny Hinn's nephew. And he's no longer a part of that stuff. But he talked about they would screen people who they would bring. Most of the, the, most of the healings were lower back pain. It was, it was non-verifiable healings. Jesus healed completely. This lady was laid out in her bed. She couldn't move. She had a fever. And he rebuked the fever and she got up and started serving immediately. But in the New Testament, when these people say, well, I believe in healing, you know, there's healing, and, and, and God can heal anybody. I'm not saying He can't. But the healings had purpose. In the New Testament, was Paul ever sick? Was Timothy ever sick? Was Trophimus sick? Was Epaphrodite sick? Paul left Trophimus sick. Paul had the gift of healing at one point for a specific purpose. But it was never about the physical healing. It was about authenticating. But Jesus was proving that He's ultimately able 
to heal all disease in the future. That was his purpose. That he had authority over that. He can give us a victory over death and disease. And he demonstrated that. But by the way, in the pastoral epistles, it says nothing about healing. And the instructions to the church. Have you ever thought about that? And there's books. Go into a bookstore, especially charismatic bookstores. Go in there and look at the books on healing. There, there were people that talked about the signs and wonders movement to make people believe. No, they don't believe because of that. They believe because of the Spirit revealing the truth of the Word. It doesn't say, and they shall be converted by what? By healing, by the preaching of the Word. And so, he had authority over disease, which was a consequence of sin. And he had authority over the demons, which was symbolic of the control of sin in our life. So that was his authority, the authority of the Messiah. That was his ministry authority to show that. Well, he also, uh, Mark reveals the ministry aim of Messiah in verse 35. He tells us, it says, and rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed. He gets up after he had been doing ministry all day the day before. This was supposed to be the day of rest. He's sitting there healing. The whole city's there. And so he goes to bed. He gets rest. He gets up early and says, I need to go be with the Father. Why? Because I want to know what the Father wants me to do. Because all these people are coming now. And the word's just going to continue to spread. And so... Three or four hours sleep most. Yeah. And you think he was tired? Yeah, yeah, of course he was. He didn't want to get up. But he got enough rest to get up and then go be with the Father. And it says he went to a solitary, desolate place. It's a, it's, the word in Greek is aremos tapos. It's mentioned three times in the New Testament that he would go. It, it, some people think it might have been close to where he was tempted. But I, I don't necessarily buy into that. But it just—it's a desolate place. He wanted to go be alone with God, so he had to go away, and he prayed. Why did he pray? Because he was showing his dependence on the Father. Remember, he was one hundred percent human. He had temporarily put aside his power. Philippians two five says he emptied himself. Two five through eleven taking the form of a man. So he depended on the Father to lead him and the Spirit to empower him. He didn't, he didn't use his second person of the Trinity power while he walked the earth. He walked the earth as a human. He retained all the godly nature and all the godly character, but his power he had set aside. So he wanted to go be with the Father to find out, okay, what do we do here? And what happens? Everybody starts looking for him. It says uh, that he went to pray. In, in John five nineteen, it says, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Well, how are you going to know what the father is doing if you don't go spend time with him? How are you going to know if you don't spend time with him? Um, Years ago, Chuck Swindoll wrote a book called Intimacy with the Almighty. I read it a bunch early in ministry. It's a great little book. It's real tiny. 
It's a good guide book. I like the tiny books. And in that book, he talks about four things. Simplicity, solitude, silence, and surrender. And just getting away with God simply to get away, not not having all these grandiose plans about a, a quiet time, but just getting away, simply to get away, to, to spend some time alone with God. Getting to a place of solitude, no noise. It's hard in our culture to get away from noise. To get away. You have to get up in the morning to do that. You can't do that after about 6 a.m. It's hard. There's always some kind of noise. And then just spending time silently meditating on His Word and, and, and asking Him, Lord, what, what are You doing with me? What do You want me to do for You? How can I serve You? And then surrendering to what He reveals through His Word and through the time with You. So Jesus went away, it says, verse 36, the disciples searched for Him. Jesus did not want to be seen as just a miracle worker. (laughs) He wanted to be recognized as Messiah. God's anointed one who rules and reigns. Remember in John 6, after He fed the 5,000, people were flocking to Him because He fed these people. And He says, you just want Me what? Because I fed your belly. You don't want Me to feed your soul. And Jesus didn't want that. And what do they do? They find him. They found him. And, and what do they say? I love this phrase that Mark's put there. Everyone is looking for you. There's not a more true statement in the whole Bible than that. Everyone's looking for you ultimately, right? Every man is looking for what Jesus has. He just doesn't know it. Everyone's looking for you. No one or nothing else in the world can do what Jesus does. No religion, no government, no amount of wealth, no amount of power, no relationship. Nothing can do what Jesus does. Everybody needs what He offers. It doesn't matter what part of society you come from. doesn't matter what your background is. doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. Everybody is looking for Jesus. Without God, guys, it's just a bunch of matter and material with nothing. That's all. all. The Jews were looking for Him too. They just didn't like what they saw. No, well, no, that's exactly right. But they were looking for Him and ultimately they needed Him. Yeah. He is the only source of true living. He's the only source of truth that tells us how we are to relate to the world around us. And the only way to know that is to go beyond our physical world to the Creator. It's like Paul in Acts 17. Remember he says, hey, I see you guys worship this unknown God. Let me tell you, because everybody knows. They had millions of gods, but they they had one to the unknown God because still there was something missing. And so, other than the aim of knowing and doing the Father's will, he also had his ultimate aim, which was to preach and clarify the euangelion of the kingdom of God. Because when they found Him, you know what He says? Verse 38, let us go on to the next town. Now when we read that, we think, okay, He's just saying to move on. 
You know what's interesting about the Greek? They had very specific words. That word is unwalled village. Now, if a village was so small that you didn't build a wall around it, it was considered unimportant. So I want you to get the context for what's going on here. This incredible day of ministry in one of the largest cities up there that has the potential to reach a lot of different people. And Jesus is very successful and He says, the Father wants me to go here to these unwalled cities, these unwalled villages. My different, or my everyone that we reach is different from your everyone. My strategy for reaching the world is different than your strategy. Because when it says, when Peter and them come to him and they are looking for him, there's a context of not a good looking. They, they're trying to bring him back to that. If, if what happened at Capernaum with Jesus happened today, we'd film it, write a book about it, and try to get it out to as many people as possible. Like it happened in Florida, right? That whole thing a few years ago. Yeah. He says, my definition of success is different than yours. This is why I came. 2 Timothy 4.1 Preach the Word, Paul says to Timothy. Be ready in season and out. It's not just about what you think is important. It's what God says is important. He said, go to these places. And it says he went preaching in the synagogues. Why? Because he was clarifying. He was casting out demons. He went from place to place to preach, not to heal. Notice that. He didn't go place to place to heal. He went place to place to preach. Why? The healing only authenticating Him as Messiah. But He clarified biblical truth. And guys, there's a difference between preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching. Teaching is sitting on the couch, and I've said this before with you, is sitting on the couch telling your kids, hey, listen, you don't want to go out on the road because you can get hit by a car. Preaching is you're out in the front yard, you see your kid out there going toward the road. Hey, don't go in the road! It has a sense of urgency and passion with it. And it doesn't say Jesus came to teach, he came to preach. Most people don't like preachers. What does Romans 10 say? Romans 10 14. How are people to come to faith? By what? The teaching of the Word? What does it say in 10? Romans 10, 14? By the preaching. And how are they to preach unless somebody sends them? How beautiful are the feet of those that bring what? Euangelion. Guys, for a church to be faithful, it has to preach and proclaim biblical truth with first of all, clarity of understanding about biblical authority and inerrancy. Do you know there's only 10 seminaries in the whole United States that believe in biblical inerrancy? Yeah. Only 10. Wow. Only 10. Wow. I want you to think about that for a second. Biblical inerrancy and authority have to be clarified by the local church. Second, un compromising loyalty toward biblical values on sex, marriage, family, gender. We don't compromise those values. We don't change standards because of culture. And third, an urgent 
mission to witness and make disciples. If these are not part of the local church, guys, it's not a faithful church. You've got to have those three elements where you're preaching and clarifying biblical truth about the Bible and God's Word. What does Matthew 28 say? 18. It says what? Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded, and I'm with you always. His authority, His Word, His presence. All in that one passage there. So, here's a question for application. Is my faith active and visible when I leave my church or my place of worship or my place of instruction or my Bible study? Is it active when I leave? Two, do I care more about physical healing and blessing than spiritual healing and blessing? Do I make time alone with God a priority? If I'm following Jesus... What should my aim of ministry be? What should it be? Is it just to go through the motions of, of, of simulating? Or do I really care about what God wants me to do? When I wake up in the morning, do I start my day thinking, okay, God, what do you want me to do today? How do you want me to serve you today? And as you think about all those things, is there anything I need to repent of or ask Him to change about me? No easy day for us as believers, guys. There's no easy day. Kent, will you close our time in prayer? Thank you, Lord, for this day. <clears throat> we thank you for this this morning. Lord, we pray that <clears throat> you'll provide us opportunities to show us how we can serve you as we go about our day each and every day, Father, and that we'll wake up with that same thought. Uh, that the first thing is, how do we how do we serve you, Lord? So we thank you for all these men here that, that want to come and uh, learn more about you, uh, to learn more about your word, and uh, send them out, Father, to the various <coughs> excuse me mission fields that we have um, in each of our lives. In your name, amen. Amen. amen.